the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about white evangelicals and the vaccine. And then what happens when Easter doesn't fix things? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Glad to have you with us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. It couldn't be nicer out there. We are glad that you are with us today on a good Tuesday. Uh, Later on in the show, we are going to reveal. I'm going to talk to you about who the next co-host will be here of The Common Good. That is going to be starting. uh, That co-host will be starting tomorrow. But today I am flying solo. Glad to be with us today. In just a second, I want to talk about uh, a, a prominent evangelical, white evangelical leader who had some interesting things to say about the COVID-19 vaccine. Because a lot of people, you hear this going on right now, a lot of people uh, not wanting to get the vaccine, saying, you know what, I, I don't know if I trust it or, uh, you know, it's it's a government wanting to do something. It hasn't been tested long enough, whatever else it might be. And some interesting data came out recently that said that uh, the the push of not getting the vaccine, the group of people at the front, at the heights of not getting the vaccine, saying, I'm not going to get vaccinated, are white evangelicals. And I think that's caused a lot of people to go, why is that? Now, you do know from our uh, this past year politically that white evangelicals tend to be uh, conservative. They tended to a lot of them vote for Donald Trump and be kind of in that camp and and that camp, despite uh, former President Trump saying that he was getting he got the vaccine and encouraged other people to do it. It's still that camp tends to be uh, to kind of look sideways at the vaccine in particular and say, I'm not going to trust it. Uh, I'm not going to take that. But there was very interesting comments that came out from a prominent white evangelical leader, and that being Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham was asked about the uh, about the vaccine because, as we said, there's lots of uh, far fetched concerns about the coronavirus vaccine, in particular amongst many Southern Baptists. So there's this one I'm reading here from NPR where it talks about uh, people even liking likening the vaccine to the mark of the beast and saying that this is right out of the book of Revelation. That was kind of also out of a video posted by U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who similarly suggested without evidence a connection between the mark of the beast and vaccines. And so uh, I think people are trying to ask, I don't know, like, should I, should I, shouldn't I? Cards on the table. I've already gotten my first shot uh, about a week and a half ago. I was, oh no, we could go today. I was able to get the first shot of Pfizer. I got the Pfizer vaccine. I I drove about 45 minutes. And for me, uh, I tend to be, quite frankly, uh, I tend to be somewhat skeptical of vaccines and newest medicines and whatever else. I tend to be somewhat hesitant. But I did my research. And when it came to the coronavirus vaccine from my wife and I, we kind of said, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm I, I think it's worth it. And I think that this is a step worth taking. And I do think everybody should do their research 
and figure out what you think. I, I think some people can turn turn the vaccine away. Uh, like, I don't think it's worth us calling it the mark of the beast or anything else. But I do think there's legitimate concerns that people can have. Let's put it this way. I understand when people say, I don't want to get the vaccine. Uh, but I would say I, I have chosen and I'm I'm encouraging others to go get it. Well, that, that prominent leader uh, speaking out in support of the vaccination is none other than Reverend Franklin Graham, son of the late Reverend Billy Graham. You know, might know Franklin Graham runs Samaritan's Purse. Uh, did a lot of work with COVID-19 hospitals. And Franklin Graham tends to be very conservative, both religiously, but also politically, not just theologically, but also politically. He said, we have seen firsthand, at least I have, what coronavirus can do to a person. It's frightening and you don't want it. And then he posted on Facebook about his decision to get the Moderna vaccine. And since then, since he posted on Facebook, he said this. He said, the Internet is full of articles, theories, data, opinions concerning the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, He says, both positive and negative. There's a lot out there for you to read. I've been asked my opinion about the vaccine by media and others. I have even been asked if Jesus were physically walking the earth now, would he be an advocate for the vaccine? Uh, My answer was that based on the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Bible, he says, I would have to say, yes, I think that Jesus Christ would advocate for people using vaccines and medicines to treat suffering and save lives in this scripture passage. And he goes on to talk about the Good Samaritan and how for Franklin Graham, this the, the Good Samaritan, which from where they get Samaritan's purse, kind of uh, pushes him towards accepting and getting the vaccine. He said, we know that Jesus went from town to town healing every disease and sickness. He came to save life, to offer us eternal life. Did Jesus need a vaccine? Of course he's not. Of course not. Uh, He says, so my own personal opinion is that from what we know, a vaccine can help save lives and prevent suffering. Samaritan's Purse has operated COVID-19 emergency field hospitals, and we have seen the suffering firsthand. I also have staff and family members who contracted the virus, spent weeks on a ventilator, months hospitalized as a result. I don't want anyone to have to go through that. Vaccines have worked for polio, smallpox, measles, the flu, and so many other deadly illnesses. Why not for this virus? Franklin Graham goes on to say, since there are different vaccines available, my recommendation is that people do their research, talk to their doctor, and pray about it to determine which vaccine, if any, is right for them. My wife and I have both had the vaccine, and at 68 years old, I want to get as many more miles out of these old bones as possible. That is the Reverend Reverend, uh, Franklin Graham. And if you go read the comments, they are out there uh, on both sides. They are are passionate. Uh, He says, uh, one particular person wrote, with all due respect, you always know if somebody says with all due respect, they're about to get just nailed here. He says, you are very misinformed. Our bodies are a temple to the spirit within uh, Jesus, and he goes on to say that vaccines are toxic and that Jesus would have cleared the temple, uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, somebody else posted an article about God does not support vaccines. Uh, and someone else said, I admire you, but this is so problematic. Anyway, with my point being, so many people have gone in on Franklin Graham right here, go, no, uh, that is not what, what we need to be doing. So on some level, Uh, I have some respect for him saying, hey, this is what I believe. Now, we put this up at our Facebook page, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We put it up at Facebook at Common Good uh, Talk. Uh, And it's interesting. We asked people, we put this article up, and we asked people, do you plan on getting the COVID-19 vaccine? 
if you have already gotten it, have you noticed any adverse side effects? And we've had people out over and over. Nobody, uh, it looks like on our uh, Common Good web uh, Facebook page has said they're not getting it. Some here, Ray Nichols said, light fever from the first and nothing for the second. I got the Moderna. Mindy Hoover said, I got the Pfizer vaccines, no side effects. Uh, other people done with Pfizer, none, no effects on my first shot. So people on our uh, Facebook page have been saying, yeah, I got it and it's all gone well. Uh, but we're seeing other people uh, saying, you know what, I didn't get it. So we'd love it. Go to our Facebook page uh, at Common Good Talk. We would love to know, have you gotten the vaccine? Here's what I really want to know. I want to know if there are people out there who, like a lot of these people in this article, are saying, no way. I am not getting this vaccine. I would love for you to go to our Facebook page, find the article here with Franklin Graham, and just tell us why. Uh, because I, we, we are very interested in that dialogue. We might even read some on the air. We would love to know what you have to say. Well, we're glad that you're joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. 80 degrees here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, it feels like I'm in shorts. Shorts and short sleeves today and sandals. Like I am ready for this weather. Tired after staying up for the basketball game last night, but excited to be together. Coming up, uh, we what are we going to talk about next? Uh, it's this idea that pastors must be well thought of by outsiders, not just pastors, but all of us. How do we want to be thought of, not just by people in our tribe, but people who are quote-unquote outsiders of the faith? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really excited to have you with us today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I, I give a lot of thought. As you know, I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm a pastor at Four Corners Community Church in da- Darien, Illinois. It's kind of just south of Downers Grove. I live in Downers Grove. Uh, and uh, the church I pastor is in Darien. And uh, Our church, we started it about 11 years ago. And uh, yeah, it just consistently changes, consistently trying to figure it all out. Uh, but I th- I spend a lot of my time thinking about uh, what is uh, what is a life well lived for a pastor look like, right? Like you, a pastor is in some ways is like any other job where you get up, you, you go to work. Uh, and you go, okay, today I'm going to, I got to write a sermon the next day, you know, I got to work on the budget, or maybe I got to meet with some people who are wanting to meet with me or talk to that, whatever else it might be. In some ways, uh, being a pastor can be very much like any other job. And in other ways, it's really different. Like I, I've never actually had another job other than this radio show as well. Uh, but from what I could tell from my friends and family, uh, in some ways, being a pastor is is much the same. In some way, it's not. But one of the ways that it's very similar is uh, everybody, no matter what kind of job that you have, whether you are a pastor, a plumber, uh, a baker, a teacher, whatever else it might be, the goal is uh, that that our lives, not just Sundays, but our, our our Mondays through Saturdays, and especially here we're discussing our work weeks, that they would bring honor and glory to God. That it would, in my interactions with other coworkers and clients and other people, that that they would get an idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus by interacting with me. And, and so it's not just that my faith is a Sunday morning thing, but it's that my faith is a everyday thing. 
that speaks to and influences, and not just influences, but is the umbrella over not just my Sunday morning worship, but over how I am at the office, how I parent my kids, how I am as a spouse, and every aspect of our lives, right? The Bible says, whatever you do, in everything you do, that encompasses everything, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, that everything as the Christ follower falls under that umbrella. And, and that always really challenges me. And I'm sure as you're reminded of that, that challenge that, that should challenge you as well, that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's a big bar right there. But why would, why, why would we read it that way? Well, it's because of this, that we are, uh, Scripturally speaking, as Christ followers, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are his representatives into the world around us. And so it very well might be that that man or woman who works next to you in the office, that that their impression of Jesus is going to be most formed by you as you claim that you are a Christ follower, right? You come in on Monday and you're like, yeah, I went to church this weekend, Easter, it was awesome. And then you know, if Tuesday you're acting a, a completely non-Christ-like way, obviously none of us are perfect. But but if your life doesn't match, now your coworkers are going to go, okay, this is what it is all about. That's what it means that we're representatives of Jesus. We are uh, the conduits be- between, uh, we are the conduits to which people understand Jesus, understand the faith, and hopefully are either drawn or sometimes repelled away from the faith. And again, that should make us feel a little bit of pressure, not total pressure. It should make us feel a little bit of pressure. Uh, and and I was wrestling with this. I constantly wrestle with this because it's the same as a pastor. And, uh, and, and as a pastor, what happens often is people will go, oh, what do you do if they don't know your pastor? And you kind of have that moment of like, do I tell them? Yeah, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, not only do things change, but now you feel this pressure. Uh, because people are like, wow, I've never met a pastor or whatever else it might be if they're unchurched. Uh, and so I've really wrestled with this as I do on a regular basis when I'm at my kids games or when I'm, uh, you know, just out and about, however else it might be. Jared Wilson, somebody I really uh, admire, he wrote at uh, FTC.co. That's for the church. Uh, that's what it stands for. He wrote, pastors must be well thought of by outsiders. He says, part of living as a Christian is living as a witness to the reality of God in the world. For the pastor, that's what we just talked about, right? For the pastor, there's an additional requirement. He must be well thought of by outsiders. First Timothy chapter three, verse seven. There are numerous ways to go about this, but ministers of the gospel ought to take care of cultivating this qualification. So here are some practical ways he says. So that's why I love this. Uh, So the pastor uh, is told that he or she must be well thought of by outsiders, uh, but all of us are called to be representatives of Jesus, and that, that that's how people are going to get to know Jesus. And so I think these are all practical, really helpful ways to be well thought of. Number one, he says, be involved in your community. Do you have a third place you can be a regular? The coffee shop, the cafe, the corner store, the gym. Be active, be present, be friendly, Becoming a regular at a third place is a great way to stay tuned into the concerns and values of lost people. Be an active parent at school. Volunteer to chaperone field trips. Participate in school sports or on the school board. Are there any other ways to get out and be a regular presence? Take advantage of them. So there you go. Be involved in your community, too. He just comes right out and says it. He says, evangelize. Make a commitment to seek and seize opportunities to share the gospel with others. 
In order to do this, of course, he says you will not just need to exist outside your home and office, but also engage with people outside those walls. Listen well and ask good questions. Try to connect. Look for openings to witness to Christ. Ask people if you can pray with them. You'll find that as a pastor, religious conversations are easy to get into. So that's an important second one. Three, be charitable in your dealings. Are you known as a miser when the fundraisers come around? Will you refuse to buy Girl Scout cookies uh, or patronize the neighborhood lemonade stand? Do you complain or about poor service at a restaurant? (laughs) This is so funny. I know of people in churches I've been in who are the worst tippers in the world. Don't ever just leave a a gospel tract instead of a nice tip. Leave a big tip and a gospel tract. Are you a bad neighbor, he says. Is your posture toward the community or your church's posture towards the same scene as antagonism? All of these. Be charitable in your dealings. And fourth, be uh, circumspect online, Wilson writes. The world is watching. If you're a kind of pastor who's constantly arguing on Twitter or posting angry political rants on Facebook, you are bearing witness to your true hope, which is not Christ. Treat others with respect and kindness. I thought this article was uh, fascinating as I was thinking about what's it look like for me as a pastor to be well thought of by outsiders? What's it look like for you, school teacher, uh, stay-at-home parent, uh, banker, businessman, plumber, whatever else it might be? What does it look like for us to be good representatives of Jesus? What's it look like for us to be well thought of by outsiders? I think Wilson gives us some great practical steps. Be outside your, your bubble. And then think about the way that you act and treat and talk to other people. I think that is a fascinating article we're going to put up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Talk. Coming up next, one of our favorite uh, guests and authors and uh, pastors by the name of Scott Sauls. He regularly blogs, and he asked a question that I think I've been wrestling with. What happens when Easter doesn't fix things? This has been such a hard year. And a lot of us went into Easter, we celebrated, but life is still hard. What do you do with that? We're going to talk about that topic next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on another beautiful Tuesday afternoon. This past weekend was Easter. Obviously, you know that. And for a lot of us, Easter is just a grand celebration. If you are a Christ follower, then Easter is indeed a time to celebrate. Uh, But, you know, we still are in the midst of a pandemic where many, many, many people have died, have been sick. We're also just besides even besides the pandemic, like that's the major one. But also then there's just the struggles of life. Like there's a lot of you out there who. Uh, You know, just wrestle with where is God when things are going badly in my life? I I wrestle with that as a person and also as a pastor, as people regularly come to me and ask that question. It's the old problem of evil, problem of pain. What do you do when life is crumbling around you? That's a really hard one. That's where the rubber meets the road with our faith, to be honest with you. It's kind of easy to be a Christian when all of life is going well, when things are rolling uh, when we even start to believe that things are rolling and going well because I'm a Christian. But what happens when that doctor comes in and he gives you that prognosis of cancer? What happens when your child is sick? Uh, what happens when uh, the, the the boss calls you in and says, hey, uh, your services are no longer needed here? Or what happens when 
you know, uh, that dream that you had just comes crashing down or that relationship that you put so much into fractures apart. Uh, And the list can go on and on, but we live in a sinful and broken world mired by the effects of sin. So what happens when those things don't go away? When those things do not get better, how do you wrestle with that question? I know in my own life, I've really wrestled with that at various times where family members have been sick or uh, bad things have happened. Just going, God, God, where are you? Like, what do I do with that? And I was thinking about that after Easter, because on Easter as a pastor, you, you just rightfully so you preach victory. You preach redemption. You preach uh, that, that death has been defeated. And all of those are true and to be proclaimed. But you also have this idea in the back of your mind. There are still people sitting here listening to me right now for whom that doesn't feel true. They know it's true, but their life circumstances are telling them something else right now. And and, and you always have that. And, and so I was wrestling with that even at Easter time. What do you say to those people? And now, especially in the midst of a pandemic where we feel this nationally, where we feel this globally, Where are you, God? What do we do? And and so with that in mind, I came across, as he often does, uh, a great writing from Scott Sauls. Scott Sauls at scottsauls.com. He is somebody that we quote here on The Common Good often. He's somebody we've had on a few times. We talk about his books and his writing and his preaching. Uh, I would encourage you to follow him in all the different places you can. Scott Sauls, S-A-U-L-S. He writes here at scottsauls.com. He begins by talking about uh, one of the most famous hymns. And if you've been around the church, you know uh, this song, this song called It Is Well by Horatio Spafford. Uh, Horatio Spafford lost four daughters in a tragic Atlantic Ocean shipwreck. And as he was taking a boat back across right there by where his daughters died, he wrote this hymn, It Is Well. He lamented his, quote, sorrows like sea billows roll. This particular hymn, Saul's writes, has resonated throughout the generations, especially during unprecedented times like these as the world battles a global pandemic. Just days ago, he writes, some of our friends and neighbors posted a masterful rendition of the hymn as a gift in a season of anxiety and lament. Like most time-tested hymns, as well as every book of the Bible, It Is Well was created from a deep sense of pain. Whenever our church sings it, I look around the congregation to see how it's impacting. Without fail, those who sing the hymn with the most gusto are the sufferers, people battling cancer, mental illness, addiction, bereavement, social rejection, unemployment, COVID-19 fears, and any number of other trials bellow the lyrics in such a way that says, this is my song. And Saul's asked the important question, what enables these afflicted souls to keep singing? What empowers them to keep hoping? What what keeps them going? He says at Christ Presbyterian Church, where he pastors the family of believers in Nashville that I've had the privilege of serving as a pastor, there are scores of people who've endured deep sorrow. Uh, and loss and who have been ex- who have done so exceptionally well. It's not that these men and women have denied suffering or somehow swept it uh, realities under the rug. Uh, like Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, they have let themselves feel the anger and the sadness of their losses, still weeping. But then they still know the truth. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? All believers in Christ, Saul says, 
are currently living in the middle chapter of God's story. The middle chapters, like all good stories, are fraught with drama and setback and angst and loss. And yet, the final chapter, which happens to be a chapter that has already been written, is the chapter of a world without end. It is the chapter that goes on forever and that promises what another singer-songwriter calls death in reverse. Indeed, it turns out that Tolkien's notion of everything sad coming untrue is true, and C.S. Lewis's parallel notion of the last and everlasting chapter being one in which every day is better than the day before is also true. Sauls goes on to talk about, about some of his own stories of sitting with people in his church as they were at their last days. And then Sauls ends this way, and this is what I really wanted you to hear. As you wrestle with just the brokenness around you, you know, that loved one who left you and said that you're not good enough for me or that doctor who told you you're going to die or uh, whatever else it might be. Sauls writes this, for better or for worse, in joy and sorrow and sickness and in health, may we never forget, especially in times of pandemic, instability, loss and even death, that the promises of God remain true yesterday, today and forever. Not one of those promises risks being negated by horrible circumstances or tragedies, even by losses as tragic as those endured by Horatio Spafford and his wife. In fact, such tragedies in the hearts and through the stories and the lyrics of hope written have the effect of establishing the promises of God. While there are things that can temporarily distance us from our health, our family and friends, our financial security, and even from this world, nothing in all creation will ever be able to distance us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If this was true for Paul, who faced death all day long, then it must also be true for us. Indeed, this pandemic and all other forms of pandemonium are not okay. And if it's not okay, then it is not the end. That's Scott Sauls' answer to the question that we've been wrestling with together. What do you do when life is crumbling down around you? Such good words. I wanted you to hear that because I just, uh, we need to hear it. We need uh, to hear that. Well, uh, coming up next, I want to share with you what's next here for The Common Good. We are going to talk about that. And then if we've got time, we're also going to talk about an article out of the Gospel Coalition uh, no seatbelt required for God's good gifts. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Uh, any of you who've been around The Common Good, you know that it used to be for the vast majority of our time here at AM 1160, it was myself and Ian Simpkins, and then Ian moved away to Tennessee back in the middle of February or so, and uh, been doing it mostly by myself, but with some guest co-hosts since then. Well, we are excited to announce that starting tomorrow, uh, there will be another person here in the chair. There will be a new co-host, no longer a guest co-host, but a new co-host here of The Common Good from here through all of eternity I am super excited to tell you will be Aubrey Sampson. So Aubrey was uh, one of my guest co-hosts. She co-hosted with me five or six times over the last two months. And I got to tell you, hosting a show with Aubrey has been a ton of fun. Aubrey is a her and her husband, Kevin, who I actually went to college with. Uh, her and her husband, Kevin, started a church in West Chicago called Renewal Church. They live there with their three sons. Aubrey is also an author. 
Uh, so she has written two books and has a third one coming out soon. She's a speaker. She's basically much more accomplished than me. And so, uh, but Aubrey's just a ton of fun. And so she, her first day here as the new co-host of The Common Good will be tomorrow. And I want to encourage you to listen because Aubrey is, it's going to be a lot of fun. And so we're going to get to know her a little bit tomorrow and off and running this new season. As much as I've enjoyed doing shows by myself, I am much more excited to do them uh, with Aubrey as she kind of takes the chair and we kind of run forward. So uh, really excited about that. This is something when Ian said that he was leaving, I knew that it was for the better for him uh, because he was going to such a good church. It just fit so perfectly. And if you follow Ian on social media, you know it's already been a huge blessing in his life. It's been a great move for him. Uh, but it left a huge hole. The irony is like Ian and I were in the process uh, of kind of negotiating our next contract. That then we were going to continue with the show. And and then this church thing came out of the blue for him. And so uh, it left this hole and, and kind of going, well, what do we do now? And this show has always been, for me, it's always been me and Ian. And and so, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it fear, but a great amount of like, well, what's next? What do we do? And uh, put our heads together, our program director, Marcus Brown, and some other people here at the station going, what do we do next? And uh, thankfully, they had they had some great ideas. Uh, and, and the name that kept popping up was Aubrey, was Aubrey Sampson. And so uh, we called Aubrey and she came in. And if you listen to any of the shows that she co-hosted, Aubrey's a, she's just a natural and a ton of fun. I feel like uh, we already have good kind of chemistry. And uh, yeah, so we're super excited. Aubrey will be joining us tomorrow. And so I would encourage you to join us and, uh, you know, give us a few weeks to kind of get our feet wet and figure it out. But we're really going to hit the ground running. And uh, no more solo shows for the time being, but instead it will be myself and Aubrey Sampson beginning tomorrow. So excited to share that uh, now that it is official and we will be off and running tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, join us. Make sure you're with us and you'll see a lot of things posting uh, popping up online on social media. Uh, So be sure to check those out and let Aubrey know that you are excited for her to be joining you. So. Starting tomorrow, all new season here at the Common Good. All right. Well, at the Gospel Coalition, I was just reading this this morning. I enjoy going through the Gospel Coalition uh, website, and that doesn't mean I agree with everything they write. It doesn't mean uh, that it's just, you know, you know, it's always like, oh, this is gospel. You've got to read this. Uh, but I, I do think that they do write a, go- a lot of good stuff that kind of gets you thinking. Uh, and so with that in mind, I read this just this morning. It says, no seatbelt required for God's good gifts. This is written by Hayden Hefner. No seatbelts required for God's good gifts. And I think uh, what we're getting at here is, uh, have you ever been involved in the Pentecostal church or one of the churches that really rely heavily upon the gifts of the Spirit? Uh, and, and a lot of times when you're not a part of those churches, you look at those churches with kind of sideways, like kind of through kind of with a sideways glance going, is that really going on? Are those things true? Uh, and, and then you go to the other side of the spectrum and you've got uh, churches that are uh, going, you know what? None of that is true. Uh, and y- you kind of wrestle with, I'm not sure what to believe. Well, that's what the Gospel Coalition article is getting in here. As a pastor, I wrestle with this all the time. And the author says here, pendulum swings and reactionary fears. This is how I would describe my first few years of pastoral ministry. I grew up in a Pentecostal church where I was exposed to the sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, healing from an early age. So their open practice was normal to me. 
uh, I feel a profound sense of gratitude to this history. It allowed me to see God working through the gifts in ways uh, I would have otherwise not. This exposure to charismatic practice continued into my teenage years. During this time, though, my perspective of the gifts began to be challenged by what I perceived as their misuse. In his kindness, the Lord used these experiences to prompt a theological metamorphosis. He led me to men who were teaching the Bible like I'd never heard it before. Scripture changed from grainy black and white to brilliant colors. And above all, the gospel became clear to me. This metamorphosis included baggage and misunderstandings. In a state of reactionary immaturity, I began to consider all charismatic expression with doubt and caution. For a brief time, I considered cessationism. That's uh, the idea that the gifts don't exist anymore. The theological pendulum was swinging. I eventually adopted the language that I heard from other young reformed pastors. Use about charismatic gifts within the church, open but cautious. But here's the important part. He says, I have now come to believe I was wrong to think this way. I no longer want to be open but cautious. I want to be eager and wise. The primary reason for my change is Paul's command. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Paul's words cannot be clear. He not only tells us what to pursue, all spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, but also how with earnestness and for the purpose of loving others. This passage became the death knell to my open but cautious perspective. He goes on to say that open, quote unquote, implies passivity. Paul doesn't advocate, he says, passivity. Paul makes it clear that an eager pursuit is by the, is the means by which God has ordained us to experience and receive spiritual gifts. Cautious implies danger, he says. As a Christian, I believe God graciously gives good gifts to his children, and I believe he still gives the sign gifts to his children. This led me to a startling question that moved me to repent. When I said I was cautious about some of my father's gifts, what did this communicate about my father? Caution is not the attitude children have towards their father's good gifts. He goes on to say, you need a channel, not a seatbelt. How do you guard against the abuse of spiritual gifts, he says. This is an incredibly important question. It's an incredibly important question. He says, without wisdom, we are just noisy gongs. I want to seek gifts, he says, with unfettered eagerness and joy while simultaneously seeking how to exercise the gifts in the way Scripture demands through self-sacrifice and the strengthening of the body of Christ. Without such wisdom, after all, we will be noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. We will gain the gifts, but have no lasting effect on the body of Christ or the world at large. Without the governing channel of loving wisdom, there will be no spirit-empowered life-giving river. There will only ever be a stagnant, self-serving, charismatic swamp. This is why I want to be eager and wise in my pursuit and exercise of all spiritual gifts. That's written by Hayden Hefner at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. I think that's a great uh, way to put it. I grew up and I've always in my ministries have, have been taught open but cautious, but I think he's right. That kind of takes a negative stance to it. But what instead would we do if we were eager and wise, eager and wise, eager for God to pour out all that God wants to pour out, but wise in the way that we think about them and bound to scripture, he says, that's our seatbelt, bound to what the scriptures tell us, eager and wise rather than open and cautious. I think this is a great article, a great idea, something I've really wrestled with as a pastor. And just as a Christian, we would love to know what you think. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at common good talk. Well, uh, we're glad that you're uh, with us. Coming up next, uh, what is one of the biggest drawbacks of going back to the office? 
an interesting finding by the Wall Street Journal. We're going to mention that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about David French's latest post about the resurrection. And then we're joined by Grace Olmsted, author of a new book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a beautiful, sunny Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Our friend David French, who's been on the show multiple times, he wrote a great post at the French Press, but I want to talk about it because it has to do with Easter. As we start to move away from Easter and the good news, well, we always live in light of the good news of Easter, but we start moving away from the actual day of celebration. Uh, I thought David French wrote something really good about resurrection faith. Before that, I saw this, and this just made me laugh. I wonder how many of you are going to struggle with this. This was at the Wall Street Journal. You're going back to the office, uh, and it says, you know, one of the biggest uh, hurdles is is going to be for a lot of people who stop working remotely and go back to their office, the afternoon nap. It says working remotely has made taking an afternoon nap a lot easier, and it won't be easy to give up. This one guy said, I will totally miss the naps. This made me laugh really hard. And some of you might be like, amen to that. Like, I've been taking a nap every day. You might be thinking, "I here's the cards on the table. I am not a napper. Uh, I tend, I don't know the last time I took a nap. It doesn't mean I won't just lounge on the couch or just veg out in front of the TV for a while. But I don't tend to be a napper. I'm one of those guys that when I take a nap, I wake up all confused and not rested. And But apparently... Uh, a, a big thing for people who are going to leave remote learning and uh, remote working and go back to the office is, man, every afternoon I kind of took a snooze. I was able to lay down and take a nap. Uh, and so uh, people are struggling with that. Maybe offices, maybe the next thing is as nap rooms. Maybe it's like Seinfeld when George built that bed underneath his desk. Uh, you might remember that that well-known Seinfeld episode where George did that. Uh, maybe people need to go for that. Find places to nap at your office. I laughed hard when I saw that at the Wall Street Journal, that something that people are wrestling with is, where am I going to get my afternoon nap? How am I going to get my recharge? Uh, really funny that that's one, one thing that has been going on here during the course of the pandemic. So if you're a napper out there, uh, go find that place in your office. See if you can uh, figure it out. Uh, apparently, that is a big thing right now. So David French at the French Press. I've been wanting to kind of this week spend some time looking at listening to things or reading things that reflect upon Easter. Uh, We are just coming off of the Easter holiday this past Sunday. Uh, And as I said earlier, we, we always live in light of the resurrection. We always, that is the foundation of our faith. Uh, Paul says, without the empty tomb, our faith is futile and we are to be pitied. But because the tomb is empty, uh, we have power, we have victory, we have life, we have hope. It's at the very foundation of our faith. And so I don't want us to just blow past Easter. So each day what I've been trying to do is to just... Uh, bring a little bit of Easter back, some Easter reflection uh, to bring it back. Because, friends, it could be so easy uh, to to just kind of lose sight of these things. Uh, it could be so easy. The, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the resurrection doesn't become bad news, but all too often the good news becomes uh, old news. It becomes common news. And I think 
often for a lot of us, the danger is not uh, downright heresy or uh, apostasy. I think for a lot of us, the danger is just complacency and familiarity. That, that the, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus doesn't become untrue for us. It doesn't become too scandalous. It instead becomes too familiar. And we go, oh, you know, I, I knew that story. I've known that story since I was a kid or whatever else. When in reality, as Christians, it is the resurrection and the, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that is at the core of everything. That, it, that is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our faith. And that that is where all of our hope is found. And so David French, who's a fabulous commentator, author, writer, uh, he's been on our show multiple times. He wrote this at the French press. Resurrection, a resurrection faith retains its power, but not the power we crave. Easter reminds me not to fear religion's decline. What's he talking about? He says, in many ways, the timing couldn't be more symbolic. On Monday, March 29th, in the midst of Holy Week and the very day after Palm Sunday, Gallup released polling that conclusively and strikingly demonstrated a rapid decline and fall of American religion. For the first time, church membership among American adults fell below 50%. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you might remember. And the decline has been strikingly swift. Between 1940 and 2000, the number more of membership hovered around 70 and now it's below 50. There's so much pain and loss summed up in this. It's symbolic of the forces that have buffeted the church from without, including the rise of hostile secular ideologies that scorn traditional faith and seek to suppress practice. But it's more symbolic of the forces that have shredded it from within, of the scandals and abuses that have made a mockery of our professed faith. French goes on to say, regardless of the cause, we're often left with the same emotions. So many Christians fear a seemingly inevitable secular future. There's a deep anxiety for our children and our grandchildren and a real alarm that the church may face deepening isolation and perhaps even persecution. But it also reminds me of something else, he writes. It reminds me of Holy Week itself. In the Christian calendar, Easter is the culminating day of a week of observances with each observance marking an increasingly grim reality. The arc of the week represents the total collapse of of public ministry and the end of a particular dream of an earthly Messiah of a revolutionary King. And so he goes through, remember Palm Sunday and then good Friday and Jesus's execution. Uh, We know the rest of the story he says, but he goes on to say this Easter, however, reminds us that death is a prelude to resurrection to a very particular form of new life, a life designed to imitate the sacrifice that led to death. In the crucifixion story itself, French writes, we see a model for how we're to respond, a human example of the godly response to Christ's sacrifice. He says, as I look back over the arc of Christian history, it's uncanny how many efforts to achieve change or to preserve influence by might and power have turned to ashes and dust. But the resurrection is the response. It's the great news of the total reset of our expectations and the union with Christ in his true kingdom. He says, let's return to Peter, the apostle who embodied the death of one dream and the birth of another. And he closes this way. One can look back at the Gallup graph uh, above and perceive a kind of institutional death in process. But the Christian faith is a resurrection faith. It is rooted in an eternal reality that not even death itself can prevail against the sovereignty and love of the creator God. In rebirth, we change. 
we transform. Or to put it another way, when it comes to the health and the strength of the American church, Good Friday is in process, but fear not, we know that Sunday is on its way. I love, I love, love, quite frankly, just reading David French's stuff, but right there about, you know, we can get so worked up about what's next for the church, how's the church going to survive, all these things. And French says, hey, uh, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. The church isn't going anywhere, that God is sometimes doing a new thing in the church and that we can look to the resurrection of Easter and rem- and be reminded that we have hope, uh, that God is still present uh, and that we have victory and that we can hold on. I thought that was a great word. Would love to know what you think. We put that up at our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, going to be joined by Grace Olmstead, the author of a new book called Uprooted. Recovering the Legacy of the Places We Left Behind. Grace is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the author of a new book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We Left Behind. That author's name is Grace Olmstead. Grace, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. No, oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Hey, before we jump into this book and, and all that it's about, why don't you introduce yourself to, uh, to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Well, I am a um, 20-something young mother of three children. My husband and I live in rural Northern Virginia. I've worked as a writer for about eight years now. Uh, for a few different publications in Washington, D.C., and now as a freelancer. Uh, Working as a freelancer is definitely a nice rhythm to have when you have three young children because you can uh, turn off that email whenever you need to. Stop checking the news if somebody needs you. And so I've been doing that for probably the last four years And this book was the fruit of a lot of research and time and thought that have developed longer than that, probably over the last six years at least. Um, And it's a book about the area in rural Idaho where I grew up. And I have family back there still, all my siblings, my parents, my cousins, aunts and uncles, and my grandpa are all still living out in rural Idaho. Wow. And again, that book is called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. And so, uh, you know, it's more than just about leaving Idaho. What What is the purpose behind this book? What, what is it that, like you said, you've been researching and you're wanting people to wrestle with here? Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about how my farmer great-grandpa and uh, my grandparents and parents did a lot in their local community to give back and to serve it and how that resulted in a wealth of blessings for my siblings and I, as well as my cousins. Um, They really fostered through their church and through their uh, given attitude toward their community, their neighborliness, a lot of social capital that we were able to tap into and inspired us to live in similar ways. But as I grew older, I realized that there was nothing I had really accomplished in my own life that wasn't a direct result of the goodness that they had planted in my life and in the life of those around me. And so I began to ask this question of what do I do now with that inheritance I've received? 
what might I owe to the past and to my place? And how can I make sure that I'm living in a way that continues to pay that debt forward that is serving as a blessing to those around me? And that not only am I, you know, making sure that I serve my children and my family well, but that I'm also thinking about my own community and my neighbors and having that same attitude of growing and strengthening social capital wherever I live. Yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, there's probably a lot of people listening now that your move is pretty drastic coming from like a small farm town to, you know, Washington, D.C. or something like that, that area. Uh, but a lot of people in these kind of days and age that we live don't live in the same areas where they grew up. Speak from your own experience. What's it like for you? You said your whole family is back there in that town in Idaho. Uh, so what's it like for you to not be there? And, and what kind of effect has that had on your life? Well, it's had seasons where it's been very hard. I think that when I moved out here, I was a college student and I wanted to be a writer And so D.C. ended up being a very natural place to get work. And I also married someone in the Air Force, so he was stationed out here. So that made it difficult to move. But I realized how uh, distance can make it very hard to be present, obviously, in a physical way, but also an emotional and spiritual way as your family walks through things. And when my grandmother passed away, for instance, back in 2014, I really felt that separation in a profound way and and really struggled with the grief of that, of of grieving her alone, as opposed to with family. Um, In many ways, I think moving out here has been a wonderful opportunity to meet new people, to experience a very diverse array of people and communities, and I've loved it. But I also realized how much Idaho had these very special and precious aspects of its communal life and its culture and its geography that I missed. I don't know if I would have realized how precious they were if I if I had stayed there. I hope I would have. But sometimes us young people have to leave in order to realize just how good things are. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So this line in the in kind of the the synopsis of your book really jumped out to me, really fascinated me. I would I would love to hear uh, you kind of unpack it. It says uh, that you uncover the ways modern life damages all of our roots, both metaphorical and literal, and acknowledges the bleak possibility that damage cannot be undone. That's a that's quite a line. Can you unpack that for us a little bit there? <laughs> I'll do my best. Yes, there's. I think when we look at our culture, for instance, it becomes very clear that we have cultivated and encouraged rootlessness Mm -hmm. uh, in the ways that we encourage young people to think in a very individualistic way as opposed to in a communal way. And that reaps a lot of immediate benefits, perhaps, when you think about leaving for a big, important job or for a very prestigious university. But long term, what ends up happening is it both causes communities to suffer because they only really are nurtured by people who stay there and love them for a long time. And I also argue in the book that it it can cause you to suffer as well, because I believe that we as humans were made to love place as well and to be rooted. Um, the philosopher Simone Weil said that to be rooted is one of the most important needs of the human soul. Yet, when we talk to a lot of our young people about their lives, we say, if they're talented, you'll go far. 
you know, or if, if they end up not leaving home, if they stay in their communities, oftentimes we'll say they've settled, which has kind of become a, a negative term to use for people. So all of our language around rootedness can be very pessimistic and negative, while all our language around mobility tends to be extremely positive. Another very difficult aspect of this is that we haven't built economic or political policies that build healthy rural communities. And so oftentimes it's very difficult for people to stay in place because there just aren't the jobs in order to really help them thrive there. And so if they're going to be able to make a living to support their families, if they're going to be able to really thrive and flourish, they're going to have to look outside of the places where they grew up. And that's a really sad thing and something I hope we can begin to turn the tide on. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad you're going to join us for a second segment. So I want to talk about rootedness and the church and Christian discipleship and how that all plays together. But I, I guess I'm curious, uh, what is your hometown in Idaho like now compared to uh, when your grandparents were there, when your parents or when even when you were growing up there? It has really become a bedroom community. Uh, Boise, Idaho, which is the capital of Idaho, has been growing exponentially of late with a suburban boom that spread across the Treasure Valley. But that means that there aren't a lot of jobs in the rural towns around it, uh, and that there's a lot of farmland that's getting turned into suburb. In Emmett, which is the town my book is focused on, a lot of the people moving in are old retirees. And so the town itself is graying, is what we say, um, as its median age continues to creep upwards. And all the young people who go to the high school there generally leave and don't come back. So it's definitely taken a turn that has been very concerning as local jobs have disappeared. Um, it's turning into a bedroom community in many ways and instances, or also into a retirement community that just doesn't have a lot of a lot of youths to help build a lot of flourishing and vitality into it as time wow. goes on. That's fascinating. And Grace Olmstead is joining us. She's the author of a new book called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Talking about the important uh, importantness of being rooted in a community, uh, I'm wondering if somebody leaves home, like I grew up in New Jersey my whole life, moved out here to the Midwest and kind of now in, in a whole nother place. How do you um, or when you moved, how do you put down roots uh, in this day and age that we are now you're in a new place? What are some intentional things that you've done or you'd encourage people to do to put down deep roots wherever they are? I think one of the best ways, and this isn't just speaking from personal experience, but also observing um, work that friends of mine have done in the realm of journalism is getting plugged into a local church, going to a church in the community where you are living. Uh, a friend of mine, Tim Carney, wrote a book called Alienated America, which is a remarkable consideration of the associational role of the local church. And the conclusion he was able to draw through his research and interviews and the work he did on that book was that in communities where there are healthy, vibrant churches, 
everyone reports that they believe in the American dream. They believe that there's hope for the future of our nation and they feel well taken care of. When those churches no longer exist or are severely hollowed out, the community as a whole suffers and there's a lot of anxiety and uh, frustration and angst that people often express. And so I think the local church has a very vital piece of um, volunteerism and life and health in community that, that we can be a part of. In addition, I think helping be involved in both civic organizations and in local politics, um, being involved in town hall meetings or helping out with a local ministry for homeless or for the food insecure are some things that I've noticed really enable you to see the needs in your community and to grow to know people who might be outside your regular sphere of um, encounters and, and influence. I've really enjoyed in the past, since I'm a writer, I, I get to contact people for interviews, but oftentimes when you sit down and begin to hear the stories of local businesses or uh, people who are running these organizations, you begin to see these threads of neighborliness and belonging that help you feel like you're a part of the community. And so even as someone who um, isn't a journalist, I think all of us can probably feel much more tapped into our communities as we get to know those stories and reach out to the people who are living and loving in, in place. Uh, another one that I love, and I wrote a piece about this actually at one point, was walking. My grandfather, uh, who lived in Moscow, Idaho, up up north, um, lived in the same house for over 50 years and worked in Moscow for over 50 years. And almost every day he would go and he would walk his neighborhood. And he got to know so many people that way. But I also realized uh, as I observed his walking habit and got to participate with him in it as a little girl, that it was a way of being very attentive to his community. And I think it really helped him to know and love it better. And so I've also tried in small ways to build that walking habit in my own life and to make sure that I'm not just driving through my community, but that I'm walking through it and observing things and really being a part of it as much as I can. Uh, so uh, besides doing the radio show, I'm also a pastor. And one of the things that's hard uh, as a pastor is people kind of come and go from your church for sometimes really good reasons, but sometimes some frustrating reasons. And I think this idea of rootedness that you already mentioned in a church community is so important. Could you elaborate some more again on uh, not just the value in being rooted in a church community, but uh, the damage it can do or the struggle that it is as you bounce from community to community of church to church. Uh, talk to a little uh, to some people out there about the kind of the damage or the struggle that that can create. Well, one of the things that was really important to me in writing this book and in talking to people in the aftermath is that what we're really trying to fight against here, what I'm really trying to fight against here is um, what a friend of mine, Charles Camosi, has referred to as throwaway culture. This idea that we can live extremely consumptive lives and see people or places as disposable. This is very common in America today, and I think we see it in 
abortion. We see it in um, food waste, which is a, a huge problem in our country and has pretty drastic impacts for both the environment and for um, our agricultural systems. We see it in the treatment of the homeless, and we can see it in overarching attitudes toward our homes and our places and our neighborhoods. I think a lot of Americans tend to shop for their churches or their neighborhoods and ask themselves, how will this place serve me? But my hope is that we can begin to see and value places for what they are, all their particular beauties, their brokenness, and to love them for what they are without necessarily always asking them to cater to our every whim. And in this way, continue to drive home the point that the Christian faith is about service, about a love that is truly self-giving, and that we are never going to find a perfect place or a perfect church, but that if we're living as lovers of place rather than as consumers of place, that shouldn't be our goal anyways. Our goal should be really to dig in deep and to give back to our communities in a way that makes them healthier and more beautiful. And I think the the secret beauty of that is, of course, that as we do that, we fall more in love with place. We're happier as a result. We get more out of living in place when we have that attitude. We get more out of our church involvement when we have that attitude toward it instead of constantly getting frustrated with the fact that it's not meeting all of our immediate right. needs or wishes. That's right. And I, uh, we'll close with this. Uh, I read a review of your book, The Gospel Coalition by Brett McCracken, and I read this there. It says, when we spend our lives increasingly on screen. So I want to talk about uh, social media and online. He said, we can't help but become disenchanted with our proximate place and discontented with our people. Could you speak to how social media and uh, us always being on our phones and this and that kind of causes us to be rootless, uh, not rooted, as you talked about here? One of the alternative title ideas we originally had for my book was Greener Pastures, uh, because we were thinking about this idea of how oftentimes discontentment comes from looking on the other side of the fence or looking at that community over the hill and thinking, it's so perfect over there, I wish that I could just be someplace else. Whereas really contentment and gratitude is what enables us to enjoy what we've been given. Because it's never going to be perfect, no matter where you are. But I think that is the incredible temptation of social media, is to look at the people around us and their beautiful, perfectly curated social media feeds and to think, ah, it's so much greener over there. I just want to be there instead of here. And so I think Brett's absolutely right. And there's a lot of work we can do in reemphasizing the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving and building that into our spiritual and emotional lives so that we have a healthy approach to place. And remember that it's never going to be perfect whether we live in that perfect Instagrammable neighborhood or in our own neighborhood. That's right. That's right. Well, the book is called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places we've left behind the author is grace olmstead grace this was really fun thanks so much for joining us today it was a delight thank you absolutely you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey friends welcome back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life my name is brian Fromm, doing my last show solo if you missed our announcement beginning tomorrow, it's a new season here at The Common Good, as I will be joined by a new co-host, 
Aubrey Sampson. Really looking forward to Aubrey getting rolling. I'm excited for the show we're going to do together. Uh, Aubrey will be with us here uh, daily from 4 until 6. Her and I will be the two new co-hosts of The Common Good. Super excited for that. Be sure to tune in tomorrow from 4 until 6 as we kick off this new season with myself and Aubrey uh, doing this show together. Well, as you know, when we end the show each day, trying to end you with a little bit of challenge, a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of encouragement. And I want to play for you a clip uh, from Tim Keller. Tim Keller uh, is uh, the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, he's no longer the pastor, like the lead pastor there. He is retired, but he prolific, prolific writer and speaker and thinker. Uh, I love uh, and value uh, Tim Keller and all that he does. He did a podcast. He was doing an interview with Dr. Russell Moore, president of ERLC, and uh, somebody that I'm sure that you know of. Uh, and Russell Moore asked him, because Tim Keller just recently wrote a book about fear and anxiety, uh, and Dr. Moore asked him, what would you say to a young Christian who's nervous about the future? What do you do with anxiety and fear? This clip is about two minutes long, so please listen to it. You'll be blessed for doing so, because it is so good. And then I want to end our show talking about it. Give a listen to Tim Keller. Well, okay, uh, let me just say something that Kathy and I have talked to each other about in the last year. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, was seen by hundreds of people, talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Mm. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. Mm. Uh, because because you got to remember, we're not just talking about resurrected people. Jesus Christ is, and this is where Christianity is unique, we're talking about a resurrected world, meaning other, uh, there's plenty of other religions that talk about a future afterlife, which is a non-material world. In other words, you get a consolation for the world we've lost. Mm -hmm. Christianity says it's not just your bodies are being resurrected, but the the world is actually going to be a material world that's cleansed from all evil and suffering and, uh, and sin. And if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then the whole world is going to be, in a sense, resurrected, mm. and everything is going to be okay. Mm. Everything. You don't even you don't know how. I don't know how, but it will be. So, uh, and you know what? Actually, it would, right now I couldn't possibly be convinced that Jesus was not raised from the mm. dead, either intellectually or existentially. So, whenever I'm, and by the way, but Kathy and I, listen, we cry. We had, we, we cried a lot last mm. night. Sometimes the reality of the shortness of what we have left here just overwhelms us. And we were just weeping together and, and crying. And then you say, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it is going to be okay. And then you can wipe your tears, but you don't stop mm. crying. Uh, it's like salt in the wound that keeps the wound from going bad, mm. uh, that keeps the wound from getting infected. But it doesn't mean that until the end of, t- you know, until we actually meet Jesus Christ, we, we still have our wounds. So they aren't going to be healed, but they'll be healed by his. So I think I still could. Yeah, I would still go back to if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he was, you're going to be okay. All right. So a little bit of background. Tim Keller is speaking from you might have heard him talk about how him and his wife cried last night. We wept. Well, Tim Keller has cancer. And while it's doing okay, it it is in many ways a death sentence that at some point is going to uh 
I, I hope it's a long time from now, but uh, I believe I'm going to get this right. It's a type of cancer that uh, the prognosis is pretty grim. And so he talks about this reality of of fear, of nervousness, of being let down by the world uh, and what's going on of disappointment. Uh, so he's speaking not from a theoretical as a pastor, let me tell you what I think. No, he's speaking uh, as a um, as somebody in the midst of the fire right now. And what is it that Tim Keller uh, goes to to say that everything's going to be all right? He says, what do you talk about? What do you say to someone who's nervous about the future? And he basically says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And there's people out there right now listening who are like, I don't think it's going to be okay. Things are bad. I'm struggling. And Tim Keller says, it's going to be okay. But I want to end our show today by reminding ourselves, why does Keller say things are going to be okay? The answer is that Tim Keller says that things are going to be okay because of the resurrection. Because the resurrection uh occurred and he said he can't even be convinced that it didn't occur either intellectually or or other ways because the tomb was is and always will be empty because jesus rose from the dead sin and death have been defeated there is this victory uh, and there's coming a day where there will be no more cancer or there will be no more struggle and tim keller says that's when we go everything will be okay but it's not just this disembodied like by and by i'm going to go to heaven one day but he said things are going to be made right here And that that is good news. And so Tim Keller says, when we look to the resurrection in the midst of all of our struggles, you might be out there right now and you are feeling uh, kind of a where is God? You're feeling, I don't know how I'm going to get through this illness. I don't know how I'm going to get through this job loss. I don't know how I'm going to get through uh, this struggle with my spouse or one of my kids. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to get through uh, my money problem, whatever else it might be. And you're asking yourself, what am I going to do? How, where is God? And how am I going to keep going? And Tim Keller says, you'll be okay. Things are going to be all right. But that's not like a, uh, a just out there platitude. But instead, uh, Keller says this from a place of experience. Uh, he says this uh, from a place of, uh, of, of personal worry about his own health. But he says, you know what? It's going to be okay uh, because Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it all changed. It all changed because what does Paul tell us? Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, but now where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? the sting of uh, that that the sting of death is sin, uh, and and that now thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Tim Keller's doing here. He's claiming the victory that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to leave you with that today. What difference in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the day to day struggle? We're gonna cry. We're gonna struggle. Tim Keller, right here, he said, "My wife and I, we weep every night over the cancer." over what's going on in our life. But that that, that those tears, uh, even those tears are bringing healing. So how are you going to make it? And what difference does it make in your life that the tomb is empty 
that Jesus rose from the grave. I'm so thankful for these words of Tim Keller in the midst of the battle, not theoretically, not speaking to us from some ivory tower, but instead going, hey, I'm in the midst of this struggle with you. And here's why I know things will be okay. Some of you are just, you're not sick, you're not, there, but you just look through their future and you're scared. And Keller says, it's going to be okay because Jesus rose from the dead. So, so, so thankful for these good words from Tim Keller. Come join us tomorrow. A big, big, big day here on The Common Good tomorrow as I'm joined by my new co-host, Aubrey Sampson. Aubrey and I will be together with you from 4 until 6. Until then, have a great day. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.